0: You're listening to Curated Podcast from the Beyond Infinity radio program broadcast live on Tuesdays from 11am from our Mornington studios in Victoria, Australia. Presented by me, Piers Cunningham. And me, John Young. So we have Dr Tony Hayes. He's a retired scientist who's worked both in physics and psychology. Thank you, Tony.
1: Okay, so what were the scientists' response to all these philosophers? Well, they ignored them. They ignored the philosophers and got on with the job they did make one concession and that's that theories should be and usually are conceived of prior to making the observations so you have a hypothesis and in the process of it becoming established as a theory you do the experiments and the experiments are dictated by the hypothesis and what you're looking at and this came from philosophy and this was a concession made by the scientists Newtonian science was incredibly successful This reductionist approach gave us a coherent picture embracing mechanics, optics, magnetism, and electricity. Under this system, a theory is true or has a high probability of being true if it adequately describes the phenomena. Better still, if it's useful in predicting novel phenomena. And then the wheels fell off. At the turn of the 20th century, Max Planck who was working on light bulbs, funnily enough doing work that is very much done today. People today are trying to get the maximum amount of light out of LEDs for the minimum amount of energy. Max Planck was doing exactly the same for incandescent lights at the turn of the century. And his results did not fit the established ways of describing light. And he came up with this idea of light being in the form of packages rather than continuous waves. He called them quanta. Later they became known as photons. Einstein was able to reassure Planck that he had found something that was significant and real, whereas Planck had imagined it was just a mathematical trick for solving his equations and in describing his experiments. Einstein described the photoelectric effect, which used Planck's idea of the photons. And we came across this whole business of the wave duality of particles. Photons could behave as individual particles, or they could behave as waves, they could interfere with each other. Even atoms had this feature, atoms could behave as waves. Niels Bohr came up with the idea of the atom consisting of a central nucleus, a positive charge heavy nucleus with electrons spinning around it. And they go on forever, but this is nonsense. I mean, how can anything spin forever without losing energy and crashing into the central nucleus? It didn't really make sense, and yet it was tremendously powerful at explaining spectroscopy and, in fact, much of chemistry and the periodic table. And the whole thing was drawn together in this term quantum theory, the quantum theory of looking at the world. And we had this Copenhagen interpretation of quantum theory. Uh, The mathematics worked, but the concepts were incompatible. Waves or particles. We had the role of the observer. Things didn't actually material until you had an observer to look at them. All very complicated stuff. So much so that Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, uh, said, look, it works Shut up and calculate. Don't worry too much about the philosophical basis of what it all means. Just do the calculations and you find their work. So shut up and calculate. And he was a great scientist, of course. But, you know, the scientists began to take an interest in philosophy. And one of the most important people was Karl Popper. He lived from 1902 to 1994. He solved the problem of induction. If you live in the Northern Hemisphere, all swans are white. The repeated observation of white swans, however, can never prove the statement that all swans are white. It's an inductive argument. You've only got to observe one non-white swan, and you falsified it. So the statement is asymmetrical. You need just one example to falsify it. Multiple examples that make it true Do not make it true. The statement cannot. Inductive statements don't work. And it becomes the hallmark of science. Popper said, make bold conjectures, but follow them by attempts to falsify them. Only those theories capable of being falsified can be counted as scientific theories. And there are a number of very famous examples of theories which are not scientific. Adler was a European psychiatrist at the same time as Freud and he had a theory which explained everything if a young child fell into the water and a man jumped in to save the child then he would explain the man's motivation if the child fell into water and the man decided not to jump in to save the child but to preserve himself Adler had an explanation for that he explained everything according to his theory and of course that is not a scientific theory it doesn't actually get you anywhere It just explains things. Marxist economics is somewhat the same. People have even suggested that Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection is not a scientific theory because it seems to explain everything. But that's not true. It is a scientific theory. And when the famous scientist J.B.S. Holding was asked, what would falsify Darwin's theory of evolution? And he thought for a few moments and he said, a pre-Cambrian fossilised rabbit. In other words, if you found a fossil which was totally out of sequence, then it would shake the very foundations of Darwin's theory and it, in fact it would falsify it. But we haven't actually found anything like that. Theories can be compared. You can say that Mars moves in ellipses round the Sun. And you can say that all planets move in ellipses round the Sun. Well, the second is a much better theory than the first, because it has more potential falsifiers. It's tantamount to saying that a theory that claims more, provided at the same time it resists falsification, is a better theory. But there are problems with falsification. It's not the whole story. It was noticed that the planet Uranus actually didn't behave in quite the way that the Newtonian laws should say it behaved. Okay, you falsified Newton's laws. But Newton's laws were so strong, so powerful, so good at explaining so many things that people were very reluctant to give them up. And a couple of people, one in England and one in Germany, suggested that the perturbations of the orbit of Uranus would if there was another planet further out and they did some very clever calculations and showed where to look for this planet and lo and behold within a few days of these calculations being published the planet Neptune was found. So Newton's laws were not falsified. So you have to be careful about falsification. The next big step forward I think comes from an American called Thomas Kuhn K-U-H-N And he lived from 1922 to 1996. He gave us a view of science. He said, there's pre-science, and then there's normal science. And then there's a crisis, and then there's a revolution. And then there's new normal science. And it goes along until there's a new crisis, and then there's a revolution. And you go round that loop, normal science, crisis, Revolution And it goes on and on like that. Now, think of examples. Psychology is probably still in the pre-science way. Normal science is what most people do all the time. Most scientists are working in normal science. In Kuhn's terminology, they're articulating the paradigm. So when you come home at night and the kids say, what have you been doing all day at work, Daddy? And you say, well, I've been articulating the paradigm crisis happens when things start to go wrong and it's happening in cosmology at this moment cosmology has done extraordinarily well it explains how we're here the big bang so much of it is adequate and explaining things and yet now we find of all things the universe is expanding more rapidly it's not slowing down we have this dark energy and this dark matter and we don't know what they are and so cosmology is in a bit of a crisis the solution will come and then it will go into another phase of normal science so what is reality and truth? well I would maintain that the theories of science are metaphors of reality it's as if the world were like this or like that I'd like to use the word utilitarianism. Science is a tool. It should be judged by its utility. But unfortunately, utilitarianism already exists in philosophy and we can't use that term. So I, as an alternative, use this idea of model-based reality. We can never know whether our theories are true. We, we can't even estimate how close they are to the truth. Theories are either adequate or they're inadequate. But adequate at what? And the answer is adequate at correlating our experiences of the world. Better still, at extending our experiences. Theories are not true or false. They're adequate or inadequate. Now, some people would search for the theory of everything. And I think this is sheer hubris. My old pal, Stephen Hawking, because we were at Cambridge together, we never worked together, but we were social friends. He was a theoretician, I was an experimentalist. He talks about this quest for everything. T-O-E, the theory of everything, TOE. Even if you came up with a theory that correlated all our experiences, we could never be sure that there was not something hiding, some phenomena hiding around the corner that we didn't yet know about. And we'd be totally misled if we came up with a theory of everything. It's sheer hubris. Let's go back to this Wilfred Sellers again. He talked about the manifest world, the world of everyday life. Well, it's now joined by several incommensurate worldviews, scientific worldviews. So so the take-home message is be sceptical. As any scientist worth his salt is a sceptic, the inscription above the entrance to the Royal Society in London is nullus in verba, accept the word of no man. You have to do the experiments. You have to work out the way the world works. Now, of course, these days, science is, science is so huge, you can't do it all for yourself. So to a certain extent, this, this little motto is a bit out of date. You have to accept a number of things but you should certainly be free to question anything. You should be open-minded but not to dogma and unsubstantiated claims. Be open-minded to new evidence. The take-home messages are that evidence trumps dogma every time. Milton Keynes, the economist, a quote from him, he was not a scientist, he was an economist, he said When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? When he was accused of having changed his ideas about something, the facts had changed. I changed my mind. What do you do, sir? Enjoy the fruits of science. The fact there is much to do, and we do not understand, does not mean that anything goes. Magic carpets and broomsticks do not fly. Aeroplanes do. That's a Richard Dawkins quote. But never fly in an airplane designed by a postmodernist. Our changing view of science. Well, that's my story. It relies very much on the work of Karl Popper and Thomas Kuhn. And as the other Mancunian would say,
0: Peter Kendall, that's your blooming lot. Thank you to Tony Hayes a retired scientist who's worked both in physics and psychology for that fascinating discussion of the philosophy of science, covering all sorts of stuff from Kant, Darwin, Newton, cosmology, the theory of everything, Stephen Hawking, who's at university with, the manifest world, the importance of skeptics, and that that great quote uh, over the entrance to the Royal Society in London, nullius in verba, on the word of no one. And you did qualify that because you actually said that, you know, it is necessary these days to sort of accept certain things as givens. So riding on the shoulders of giants, rather than having to go back and reinvent the wheel, you you accept certain things. A very broad discussion and all sorts of things which, you know, which, which you could pick out of that and, and make a lecture in themselves. I love the bit about if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there, does it make any sound? And how that ties back to the quantum idea that... It, The act of observation causes something to exist. Without the act of observation, it doesn't exist. And that, to me, is a very hard one to get my head around. We're talking sort of potentially multi-dimensions. So our eyes, our our consciousness, it almost has the power of creation. Is that what's being implied in that? There's lots of really big things that have been brought up in that lecture, and I hope all the listeners enjoy it.
1: Apparently, there is a book written on the life of Young Thomas Young and he was known as the last man who knew everything right and in those days nullis and verba meant you know trust the word of no man find out for yourself now Thomas Young Young slits Young's modulus he did so much oh he was in the middle of the 18th century but nowadays science is so big that nobody can know it all but you can if you want to find out about something you you should find out about it and not just invent it
0: when that was written above the entrance to the Royal Society, there was a lot less of a background body of work to draw on.
1: Absolutely, science mm. science was very small in those days, and it, and it, it was it was done by the landed gentry. They mm. had the time on their hands mm. to do this, and and the Royal Society, of course, came about in the during the restoration of the monarchy, Charles II.
0: You said to me on the way in the car to the studio today. We talked about other stuff and then we, we came on to what, this lecture that you've prepared, which I'm very grateful that you've done today, and you sort of summed it up in, in one sentence which was all of this science, scientific method, importance of observation is sort of still only an indication of so-called reality rather than being reality.
1: Well, it, reality is beyond us. We can't get to reality. We never know what's hiding around the corner that we, can't, that we haven't yet experienced. Mm. I think we, we're getting a bit of a handle on it, but I think we've got, you know, we're only just beginning, I think, mm. to mm. understand it. There's mm. so much out there. And, of course, this, this idea of Thomas Kuhn that, that every now and again you get a crisis, a crisis when you simply don't understand it. We know so little about consciousness. Mm. There's so much to understand, We mm. you know, so little about life. I mean, life is a mechanical process and yet somehow it's got that, that spark of something that's different. We don't understand that yet, mm. but we'll get there.
0: Mm. There is, I suppose, a sort of childlike excitement that goes with this sort of stuff, the discovery and revealing and solving puzzles that have, have people have wondered about for millennia.
1: Yes, but there's also that tiny bit of disappointment. It's not, it's not that the scientist is actually discovering what the world is actually like. It's discovering what it seems to be like. You can't be absolutely certain. And, and that, I remember when I first came to that realization, there was that tiny element of disappointment in that. It's all tentative. We might come up with a different idea, a different way of looking at things. You know, take the way, if, if I hold a coin and drop it to the ground. Well, in the old days, that was an Earth-like object wanting to get home, getting back to Earth. Later on, it was all to do with gravity, gravitational attraction. Now, of course, it's all to do with curved space. You know, it's a different way of looking at the same phenomena. We might have yet, a, yet another way of looking at it in, in, in years to come. It's, it's all tentative it's all it's, it's all provisional and yet it is incredibly useful just think of what we can do mm. and yet our understanding is man-made and it's useful because it actually fits the facts it's a metaphor we deal we deal all the time with metaphors it's as if the world is like this but who knows what the world
0: is because it's like. our and way we have of, no way of knowing it's our way of explaining it yeah All right. Well, thank you very much to Dr. Tony Hayes. He's a retired scientist. He's worked in both physics and psychology. He's actually the holder of two PhDs, the inventor of a reversing parking sensor, which he tried unsuccessfully to sell to Jaguar. We do have a couple of other podcasts that I mentioned earlier with Tony. They're on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au. One is called The Life of a Scientist. The other is called Our Plastic Brains. If you want to hear more from Tony, then I suggest you listen to those because they're both pretty interesting discussions. One of them, The Life of a Scientist, is giving you a lot of detail about Tony's life, which is a great story. And hopefully a great encouragement for budding scientists around the world and in Australia and Melbourne. So thank you, Tony. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And head to beyondinfinity.com.au for the best bits from the live show or to connect with us on social media. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for future shows.